entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrat debate was last night. We're going to dive into just how crazy, how socialist, how left-wing things got today. Plus, the impeachment inquiry, or is it a probe, or is it a process? What the heck is going on with Pelosi and her gang of libs? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here today. Man, oh man. Last night. We had the opportunity to watch the Democrats do their thing on stage. And this is one of these days where part of me feels like I wish this was not the primary, the, the overwhelming news, uh, news item, because this is going to be one of these days where it's a little troubling to think that this is <laughs> the other political party in this country. Wow, it was some stuff last night, folks. I was watching and I thought to myself, ah, this is basically the socialism Super Bowl. Uh, This is now out in the open, out there for everyone to see. The Democratic Party has embraced a European style, not just social welfare state, but state control, central planning that I think exceeds what you would see in most European countries. Perhaps all of them. I mean, the Green New Deal as described by the libs, as described by Democrats, exceeds anything we have seen in European countries to, to date, uh, today, I should say. I'm not saying it's more centrally planned than the Soviet Union, but I'm talking about present day. I also want to take a little bit of time today. I think it will help illustrate, when I say things like the libs, the Democrats are crazy, um, I know that that can sound flippant it can sound a little bit too sweeping too broad so what i think is helpful given all that is to look at how there are some democrats who are substantially less crazy than others and that was something that we certainly saw on display last night as well some democrats had a good night even if i think their plans are totally bonkers who did well who did poorly who's insane who's somewhat normal those are some of the, the layers that we will get into today uh, from the debate last night. Uh, but first and foremost, let's just understand that the Democrats now, as a, as a function of the overall message of the party, not, not based in what any one individual says, the Democrats embrace a full-on government takeover of your health care. Sure, some are saying um, a Medicare for all plan versus a just Medicare option, guess what? The Medicare option most likely will turn into a Medicare for all plan. And I'll get into why that is. But it's just, uh, it's the difference really last night with all these different candidates between the continued incrementalism of the progressives. Oh, we're not going to go that far. Just do this thing for us. Just do this thing. Let the government take control of this aspect of your life and that aspect of your life. Versus those who say, like Elizabeth Warren, well, we should be in charge of everything. We don't want those rich Wall Street bankers to be making all the decisions for us. 
Let's let a panel of experts do it. Whew. People never learn. They never figure out. They never figure out that we have plenty of history on this. These experiments have all been tried. Does not work. It does not work. For those who point to uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, and think, oh, but that's aspirational what he's talking about. And wouldn't it be a good thing if we could get there? I say no. Because if we had what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some of the others on that stage want us to as the guiding, not even principles, the, the guiding hand in our economy, which would just be the government, there would be innumerable deficiencies, not just in the market, but it would it would violate your freedom. That's that's a part of this that never. Yeah, the tax component of this is something that's difficult for the Democrats to just get around. How are they going to pay for uh, free health care for everybody except for the rich people are going to pay for it? Right. Free health care for everybody. Free child care for everybody. Free college for everybody. Free, 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 free. Well, there's going to be a lot of taxation to do that. And when we say taxation, what we really mean is adding debt to what is already seemingly an unsustainable debt load over the long term, but just add even more debt, more trillions and trillions with a T, putting it off onto future generations. And I know that this is not a happy moment, folks, but you know what the history of fiat currency is? It's very simple. It always goes to zero eventually. There's always a crash. There's always a dissolution of that currency when it is not backed by anything solid when it is not pegged to anything that cannot just be fabricated out of thin air goes to zero we've we've run this experiment in the past this is not a good thing for us and yet here we are now with half the country believing the promises of the democrats that this is only going to be on the backs of the rich meanwhile the rich if you look at taxation we already have a very steep progressive income tax and yet the hope i think is that they'll make it even more so bernie sanders is talking about an over 90 percent tax rate on certain levels of income european countries have tried this didn't work out with well. the millionaires tax in france we will take the millions from the very wealthy french people and then gerard Depardieu. this is true actually very famously was like i do not know if i can continue to be the most uh, famous french thespian I don't know why Gerard all of a sudden sounds like he's Pierre from Canada, but, you know, it's close enough. He has a more refined French accent, more like a Pierre. Uh, but he he was going to flee and actually become a Russian citizen, I think. Because Russia has a flat tax now. I'm not saying we should emulate the Russians on taxation, but they do. I think they have a 10% flat tax or 15% flat tax, something like that. They got their own problems, though. People don't pay it. <laughs> so they have a flat tax that a lot of rich people just don't pay. But last night was a lot of empty promises and even scarier than the emptiness of the promises, the prospect of those promises being made real if they were able to follow through on it. Let's let's dig into some of this, shall we? And then I'll, I'll tell you who I the winners and losers, the usual horse race stuff. When you talk about politics, the uh, sportsification, if you will, of oh, who won, who lost, who's on the scoreboard? Uh, but we'll get into a little, a little bit of that. And then I'll talk to you more about impeachment and just some other stories of note, uh, the latest on Syria. Uh, but this will all also come up because the major topics last night were addressed, except for immigration, which I thought was so interesting. I can't even remember if there was really any 
specific. It was a long debate and very boring. It was like a high school chemistry lecture from hell. It's just wop, 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 wop. Nothing particularly interesting. Uh, perhaps the most interesting moment was when Kamala Harris was trying to goad Elizabeth Warren into supporting banning Trump from Twitter as if any serious person thinks that's going to happen. And Elizabeth Warren was like, not on, not on my watch. Not today. Um, but back to the the issues here. I mean, it was nothing new particularly. And I think the avoidance of immigration as a topic was probably to the Democrats' benefit because they, they've just completely lost themselves on that issue. There are some parts, some aspects of the Democrat platform that are now truly described as, uh, would, would accurately be described as extremist. On abortion, for example, I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, who, and I'm, I'm going to try to tone down my, my pro-Tulsiism today just because she's far and away my favorite Democrat. Now, that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, really, because I don't know if it was the worst Republican versus Tulsi Gabbard. It, it would be close. Would I vote for Tulsi Gabbard over Kasich for president? That's a tough question. Come back and ask me that one another day. Uh, but she's far and away my favorite. I'm going to try to temper that a little bit because I don't want to seem like I'm on you know, Team Tulsi over here. Obviously, I think the Democrats are insane. I think their party has completely lost their minds. But on issues like uh, on issues like uh, abortion, uh, immigration, they have fallen far out of anything that could be considered the mainstream. Forget about who's right and who's wrong, what the ethics are and all that for just a moment. The American people aren't with them on this stuff. They're not with them on open borders. They're not with them on third trimester abortion. And on some of these other areas, there was a clear incoherence. You know, you had Mayor Pete, for example, with all these uh, proclamations about how he he wants us to get out of the Middle East, but 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 not the way Trump is doing it. Okay, well, when are we ever really able to get out of the Middle East? When are we ever able to just pull the plug and say enough is enough? These are the questions the Democrats did not answer and need to answer. But let's dive into the, the biggest single policy agenda item because it's the dream of Democratic socialists and continues to be so and has been for over 100 years in this country. Just socialists, how about that? Uh, Health care that the government pays for and controls. Healthcare is a human right. Medicare for all, which is not even an accurate description of what it would be. Let's dive into that, my friends. You have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families. Costs will go down. Uh, You know, the way I see this is I have been out all around this country. I've done 140 town halls now, been to 27 states in Puerto Rico. Should have done 70,000 selfies, which must be the new measure of democracy. Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it, too? So the way I see this, it is about 
what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face. So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy, they will go up for big corporations, and for middle class families, they will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. Your cost will go down. I will not sign a middle class tax increase. That, Folks, numbers don't lie. You know how when you used to play sports in high school, I'm sure pretty much most, if not all of you did, I certainly did, and you wanted to really... Don't really give a, give a a sick burn to the other side, you know. If you want, you wanted to diss them, no one says diss anymore. By the way, what happened to that? It's a great contraction of disrespect. Yo, are you, are you dissing me? No one says that. I, I think we should bring it back, producer Mark. I think we could start to say that it's time to bring back the diss. I diss you all the time. That's, that's kind of my job. But that's just a description of what you yeah. do, not what we describe it as. All right, so we'll start describing it as dissed. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, and also people used to say that's cold. Remember that? <laughs> that was always fun. Now that's Some, just the temperature again. Somebody would, somebody would, yeah, exactly. Somebody would diss somebody else. Go, Ooh, that's cold. All right. Well, Elizabeth Warren last night was talking about the healthcare system as though it's easy to just make all this stuff happen. You know, all you got to do is just, you know. I was waiting for her to tell some probably false story. You know, my daddy always told me about growing up, you know, if you got two roosters in the barn and you take one rooster, you know, you got an apple pie. It's like, I'm pretty sure your dad didn't tell her that, but, you know, she likes she likes to make stuff up. I'm just telling you, she likes to make stuff up. Uh, there's no way for her to do what she says she wants to do. And this is true of Bernie Sanders as well, who really is like a little throwback to the Soviet Union in so many ways. Uh, we'll get to him. But you can't have the program that she wants to have, even anything close to it, without raising taxes in the middle class. If you look at the tax burden in European countries, especially when you have the value added tax, uh, it's simply too high for or it's simply higher, I should say, than what we I think it's too high in general, but higher than what you have in this country right now. And on the middle class specifically, which really is just another way of saying people who are working and paying bills. I mean, the middle class is a very wide swath of, uh, of American society. And so this is just where we get into fantasy land stuff. And I will say Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who I think somebody pointed out had only won. His last election was decided by less than 10,000. He, he received, I should say, less than 10,000 votes. It was 8,500. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I saw it on the Twitter. So that's seems right, though, for South Bend, Indiana. How many people vote for mayor in South Bend, Indiana? But Mayor Pete saw an opening to go after Elizabeth Warren. She will. She keeps saying things like costs will cost will go down. But the middle class no, costs will go down is a dishonest way of of describing what's really going to happen here, which is you're going to have to have a massive increase in government taxation. Play clip nine, my good man. Mayor Buttigieg, you say Senator Warren has been, quote, evasive about how she's going to pay for Medicare for all. What's your response? Well, we heard it tonight. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Look, this is why people here in the Midwest are so frustrated with Washington in general and Capitol Hill in particular. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. No plan has been laid out to explain how a multi-trillion dollar hole in this Medicare for all plan that Senator Warren is putting forward is supposed to get filled in. And the thing is, 
we really can deliver health care for every American and move forward with the boldest, biggest transformation since the inception of Medicare itself. But the way to do it without a giant multi-trillion dollar hole and without uh, having to avoid a yes or no question is Medicare for all who want it. We take a version of Medicare, we let you access it if you want to, and if you prefer to stay on your private plan, you can do that too. That is what most Americans want. Medicare for all who want it. Medicare for all who want it would be very expensive too. Medicare is a good health care plan that people pay into over the course of their lives. And it is uh, something you can only access, as, as you know, when you reach a certain age, when you reach 65. And guess what? If people can get all the benefits of Medicare when they're 25, guess what they're going to do? They're going to want to be on that Medicare plan. But this is where supply and demand, Econ 101, the basics of how a society functions, cause problems. They can cover everybody. I could, right now, I've got a plan. I have a plan to cover the entirety of America without raising taxes on the middle class. So that's the Elizabeth Warren way. Uh, I have a plan. We could just say that every, the government could just pass a law. Everybody, everybody now has health insurance. You know what that doesn't handle? Well, how good is the insurance? How quickly can they see a doctor? What are the co-pays? What do they do when doctors don't take that insurance because it doesn't pay them enough? What do they do when the government, uh, the government people that are actually the, you know, the, the actuarial, well, they won't even be actuarials really because they'll just give everybody Medicare. Uh, but those who have to take out a spreadsheet and look at the costs of all this, say, we can't afford this. Well, then you have rationing and you have shortages, which is what you've had in every country that's tried a similar approach to having the government run all of healthcare. Can we just be honest about what the costs would be and what the downside would be? No, Democrats can't be honest about it. And I appreciate Elizabeth's work. But again, um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. But what really bothers me about this discussion, which we've had so many times, is that we don't talk about the things that I'm hearing about from regular Americans. That is long term care. We are seeing, I once called it a silver tsunami, the aging, and then someone told me that was too negative, so I call it the silver surge, the aging of the population. We need to make it easier to get long-term care insurance and strengthen Medicaid. In this state, the state of Ohio, that has been hit by the opioid epidemic, we need to take on those pharma companies and make them pay for the addictions that they have caused and the people that they have killed. So that's Senator Klobuchar. And I got to tell you, I've made jokes on the show and will continue to about her being notoriously abusive to staff, which for a lady from the Midwest, wouldn't you always think she'd be like, oh, gosh, I just made a bunch of cookies for everybody. And I just want to make sure you all got a good night's sleep. You know, I think she'd be really nice to her staff. Turns out the reports are that she was really nasty to her staff. Uh, But put that aside for a moment. She speaks about these issues sensibly. Uh, that doesn't mean correct. She's not correct necessarily in her diagnosis and what she would do about it. But she's dealing in some form of reality, which separates her out from these other Democratic candidates. So that's this is one of these moments where, yes, the Democrat debate last night was boring and crazy. But among the boring and crazy, Klobuchar, somebody who is dealing in reality, 
Um, I, I disagree with some of her prescriptions. I disagree with some of her approach, to be sure. I certainly disagree with them. We'll get into all the just the Trump hatred last night, which is a whole really almost its own debate within the debate. Just who could hate Trump the most? We'll get. I wanted to start with the policy, though, because these are the things that are supposed to matter when you're talking about politics and politicians. Uh, but but Klobuchar there talking, discussing, you know, long term care. Yeah, the, the big drivers of costs are long term care for an aging population. Pharmaceutical companies, which are certainly there, there is a component of that that is legislation based and all the lobbyists running around and that that's a real thing. Hospitals, which have no price transparency and all kinds of incentives in place to extract as much as possible from you, especially if you if you go to a hospital and you're not poor and you don't have insurance, they just find every way they can to try to take everything in your bank account. It's it's absurd. Uh if you're poor, it's just, ah, well, you know, they write it off. If you go to an emergency room, you don't have any money, they just write it off. But if you have assets, they try to come after you for everything they can. Uh, these are the things that are driving, and, and end-of-life care, right? These are the things that are driving the costs up. So how do you deal with this? Well, one of the problems that the Democrats keep running into is the history of government providing services, and even more specifically, the history of our government being able to bring down the cost of something is very clear they can't do it the government doesn't well you know what has brought down the cost of of uh let's say fossil fuels of, of oil gas in the tank is it government mandates and regulation or is it fracking and increases in technology and efficiency from the private sector just one example now some of you are probably saying but buck there you go the regulations yeah i mean the regulations can play some role in usually adding costs to it it's not making it cheaper. The only way they can make it cheaper is through direct subsidies. And subsidies are just redistribution of wealth, which are really just socialism. Right? There is corporate socialism that goes on in this country. There are people that are able to convince uh, the Congress that certain businesses need money to be competitive. And there's a national or strategic advantage to that. But the price is the price is what I'm trying to say. The market sets the price. Healthcare is an incredibly complicated system with a lot of practitioners, people that have to go to school, people that have their own bills to pay, doctor's offices that have staffs and hospitals that have equipment and all these things that go into this. And the government shows up and says, well, do this for all these people and charge this for all these services. And that's the way it's going to be. Well, the government can mandate that, but it still doesn't change what the price is. Price is the price, folks. This is what this is the the bane of the central planner's existence. It's true in healthcare. It's true in everything. Right? They, they and I, I know socialist Democrats always get so upset when you bring up Venezuela. But look at Venezuela. Not it, it just in its totality, but you look at what they tried to do with consumer goods. The moment that the economy really ran into trouble, largely because of the drop in oil prices, by the way. Uh, which our our community in this country, our, our our industry in this country that brought about the fracking revolution and uh, natural gas, the increase in natural gas production in particular in this country, has probably done more than any single initiative, foreign policy initiative or otherwise, to undermine some of the worst countries in the world, including Russia and Venezuela and Middle Eastern kleptocracies, by by bringing those oil prices way way down. That's been fantastic for geopolitics, for uh, international stability and security. The bad guys, 
the 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 real kleptocracies that rely on oil, that's been hard for them. But but back to prices and price fixing in Venezuela, uh, they said, okay, well the consumer consumers can't afford what people are trying to charge in stores for household goods, um, for uh, different you know products that you would buy, milk, toilet paper, whatever it may be. So what did the government do? The government says, okay, well, this we're gonna we're gonna decide what the price needs to be. Now that should work out for everybody. Right? The government says, well, if you charge this price, you're making enough money as the as the uh, the seller and the consumer, then can afford it. Well, the problem is that the, the producer sets a price for the seller, the person that's actually making the stuff before it gets to the store, and that's the price. So you you can keep squeezing at this and trying to manipulate it and doing all the but it doesn't change the fundamental fact that healthcare is a healthcare is comprised of goods and services, and the government can mandate that everybody is covered and that everybody's going to have all this wonderful stuff and it's all going to be, you know, happy days, you know, chocolate cupcakes, rainbows, and unicorns. But that's not what ends up happening. Sure, will there be some people that benefit? This is true of minimum wage, by the way. It's true of any number of policies. There are some people who will benefit from government intrusion in the marketplace. There'll be some people that, and, and these, are the, these are the stories we'll hear, oh my gosh, if it wasn't for my Obamacare plan, you know, I, I, I would have been in, in a terrible spot with the disease that I have or whatever it may be. And it's good for that person. I understand that. But what about all the people who, because of the government intruding on the market, have to wait months before they can get a surgery? Perhaps they die waiting for the surgery. I mean, that that doesn't get counted by the other side or people who have to go see a third rate surgeon. You want to get scared? Forget about climate change. Oh, climate change is coming for us. This is this is for people that are having an existential crisis in their own lives. They just need something to latch on to. If you want to be scared about something that's real, look at how many people die from preventable infection in hospitals. Essentially, it's bad. It's bad stuff. You do not want to go to the practitioner matters. And, and anybody who's spent enough time around the medical system will tell you that, you know, going to the doctor that's 100 miles away because that's the only one that your cut rate insurer will pay any any component of, uh, of the bill. That's not something you want to do. So what creates greater options? What creates greater efficiency? What rewards excellent care? The market. We do not. But this is fu- fundamental. And I know that we're getting I'm getting into more of the philosophy now of healthcare, but Democrats just. They ignore all of this. You can cover as many people as you want. It doesn't mean that they're getting care. It doesn't mean they're getting good care. Medicaid, the biggest studies of Medicaid show that the health outcomes for people with Medicaid versus without it are effectively the same. Effectively the same. It doesn't really matter. We had a big study out of Oregon some years ago. It was the most comprehensive study of, uh, they've ever done on Medicaid outcomes. So, And that's just, the, that's just health care welfare. That's just giving people free, free health care money or free health care. These things don't change. Doesn't matter how eloquent the speech that Mayor Pete or Warren or Kamala Harris or I mean Biden doesn't give doesn't give eloquent speeches, but it doesn't matter what any of them say. These are the realities that we all deal with. And we have run this case study so many times. You know, think about the things in your life where price is allowed to determine in general and overwhelmingly the outcome consumer electronics, food. I mean, you know, 
Uh, should everyone starve to death? Why don't we give everyone free food? No. In fact, food now is better tasting, more variety. Uh, food costs have gone up a little bit. We could talk about that. That's a function of the inflation that we pretend doesn't really exist because of a whole bunch of ways that we calculate inflation in this country. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, food is better, cheaper, and more available than than uh, any time in human history. That, that, that is fair to say. But do we do we need the government mandating that everybody has enough food to eat every day? No, because the market sets the price and people anyway. This is but we get into this basic uh, economics argument with the left, and they, ultimately they view this. You see, socialism pretends to be scientific, but it's really an emotional and philosophical creed. Socially, scientific socialism is actually what many of the earliest socialists used to call it, as though all the smart people who know things would agree with them. But the truth is that socialism is about what feels fair and feels right to people. Socialism is what drives the mentality that the price of bread should be about this because we say so, because that seems right. Doesn't matter what is, doesn't matter what is true, it matters what feels good. Same is true with our healthcare system. I mean, I think our healthcare system needs overhaul in a whole bunch of areas. Uh, we need to deal with prescription drug pricing. We need pri- we need price transparency. That's the single biggest thing. We need that across the healthcare system. What does this thing cost? Not let's hide the costs and then try to, you know, lard other things into the procedure and get some from the government and get some from the healthcare company and get some from the consumer and all these games that are played just turns into this big black box and nobody can see what's inside enough of that but unfortunately they're going to tell us i mean look and klobuchar recognizes in the debate she's like what, what warren's talking about it's just it's just fantasy stuff it doesn't work it's not going to happen what bernie sanders is discussing eliminating private health insurance does anyone understand how expensive that would be and, and then there's also the let's be honest there's a moral and philosophical argument of do I so I just need to pay for, you know, everybody else, no matter what they do, no matter what life choices they make, we all we all get the same health care now. And in fact, my earnings have to go to paying for other people's health care. I mean, I could be somebody who's very healthy, very conscientious. But if somebody else wants to, you know, drink a fifth of Jim Beam before going skydiving five days a week while, you know, smoking uh, you know, a, a cigarette, vaping or whatever. And and eating you know, eight pounds of fried food a day, that that cannot be factored into any of this. It's everyone gets the same. What does that start to sound like, by the way? What, what polity, what political entity? Everyone gets the same. Oh, that's right. The Soviet Union, where Bernie Sanders spent his honeymoon. I don't think Bernie's changed, folks. Just because he's from the Ben and Jerry state where everyone up in Vermont seems pretty cool and chill. And I love Vermont. It's a fun place. Doesn't mean the Bernie's not a socialist. He's a socialist, a real socialist with like that, with the the full on socialism plan. Just to clarify, Vice President, who are you saying is being vague? Well, the senator said she's being vague on the issue of actually both of them being vague on the issue of, uh, of the uh, uh, Medicare for all. Huh. No, look, look, here's the deal. It's it cost. Come on. It costs 30 trillion dollars. Guess what? That's over $3 trillion a year. If we, it's part of the entire federal budget. Where am I? I mean, Biden is... Look, this we're going to tie this all into impeachment and the shrill lunacy of Democrats. That'll be coming up in, in, a, in a moment here because that all matters. But on this issue of, 
of uh, first of all, Biden last night at the debate. That's your front runner. A guy barely showed up. It felt like he wasn't even really there. Biden is the is the great standard bearer of the Democratic Party. We're supposed to think that this guy is going to be able to, as he says, beat Trump like a drum or beat him like a drum. He loves that beat him like a drum thing. I, I, he repeats it all the time. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's you know, it's like saying he, he, every time he says it, at least for me, he's engaging in a little bit of uh, self-referential aging himself. It's like, I'm going to beat him like a drum. Hmm. Anyway. Biden stammered through that answer. It's clearly, yeah, okay, it's going to be really expensive, fine, but tell us why and tell us what you do that's different. That's the part of it where it all falls down. Uh, Biden is not a policy guy. Biden's really a Biden guy. It's just all about showing up, smiling, sounding like you care about things that you know are going to be popular enough to keep you in office. That's really it. There's nothing about Joe Biden that's inspiring, that's compelling. In fact, I think most Democrats would agree the single most inspiring thing about Joe Biden is that he happened to be vice president for eight years while Barack Obama was president. That's really what he's holding on to at this point. But he even said something. I mean, this was getting a lot of attention on on social because uh, last night uh, as I was watching this thing, people were like, what the heck is he talking about? Clipping coupons at the st- what? But would, Producer Mark, would you please bring us back into this this gem of a uh, of a debate moment, play clip six. No, look, I, uh, demonizing wealth people. What I talked about is how you get things done, and the way to get things done is take a look at the tax code right now. The idea we have to start rewarding work, not just wealth. I would eliminate the capital gains tax. That in, I would I would raise the capital gains tax to the highest rate of thirty nine point five percent. I would double it because guess what? Why in God's name should someone who's clipping coupons in the stock market make in fact pay a lower tax rate than someone who in fact is uh, like I said the, a school teacher and a firefighter? It's ridiculous, and they pay a lower tax. Secondly, the idea that we in fact engage in this notion that. There are one point, there's one trillion, six hundred and forty billion dollars in tax loopholes. You can't justify a minimum six hundred billion dollars of that. We could eliminate it all. I could go into detail head at a time. Secondly, the th- I mean, thirdly, what we need to do is we need to go out and make it clear to the American people that we are going to. We are going to raise taxes on the wealthy. We're going to reduce tax burdens on those who are not. And this is one of the reasons why these debates are kind of crazy, because everybody tries to squeeze everything into every answer that is given. The fact is, everybody's right about the fact that the fourth industrial revolution is costing jobs. It is. The fact is also corporate greed. If they're going back and not investing in their employees, they're reinvesting and buying back their stock. I, I love how he, how he says everyone else tries to squeeze everything into an answer. I was waiting for him to tell us about the origins of the universe there. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton show we just were hearing about biden being biden and i guess my biden is not turning into my david gergen you know there's gurgling with gergen over at cnn nixon reagan ford impeachment and brasha and they, they all look at david gergen oh david gergen tell us tell us more about what the future of america holds 1776 1791 
1857 was the year I was born, actually. 1857 was Sagittarius. He just says all this stuff. And Biden is a little bit of that going on. Hey, the, the, the real thing, uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really into what I'm saying, but, uh, but I don't know what I'm saying. And, and we can fix all the things, but, I mean, I can't fix the things without fixing them. And not six, seven. <laughs> it's just, this is the Democrat front runner. Joe, Joe Biden, blue collar Joe. His son's not blue collar. Son's making 50K a month to not do anything. Son's making 50K a month to, uh, to eat, breathe, and sleep wherever he chooses. Uh, but nonetheless, Biden's out there doing his thing. Oh, wait, we got we to gotta deal with this. We'll go back to policy. We got to talk Syria. We got to talk about guns. But so it's like, I just, I don't want you to think that I want to take your guns. But like, I'm totally going to take your guns. So let's just take a moment, though. This is because the, the Hunter Biden thing, that, that was the, we knew that that's why Hunter Biden gave his interview is uh, did an interview with a friendly, of course, over what was it? ABC. I can never keep all these places straight. And here's how it went when Joe was asked about his son at the debate last night. Play clip four, please. If it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Vice President Biden? Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy of the United States government in rooting out corruption in, in Ukraine. And that's what we should be focusing on. And what I wanted to make a point about, and my, my son's statement speaks for itself, what I think is important is we focus on why it's so important to remove this man from office. My son's statement speaks for itself. I did my job. I never discussed a single thing with my son about anything having to do with Ukraine. No one has indicated I have. We've always kept everything separate. Even when my son was the attorney general of the state of Delaware, we never discussed anything. So there'd be no potential conflict. My son made a judgment. I'm proud of the judgment he made. Hmm. Proud of the judgment his son made. That's an interesting take. Notice how Biden kept falling back into the statement speaks for itself. And, you know, and the the statement speaks for itself. And, uh, you know, that statement, it you know where I'm going with this. Almost like he was trying to stick to the script to make sure he didn't give anybody any openings. Here's the problem that Joe Biden has with this whole Hunter Biden situation. Uh, What we know already looks bad. I'm not saying it's illegal. It's just gross. It's already established that it's gross. And for Democrats who have been running around with their hair on fire, screaming about everything that Trump does, Trump's family, the emoluments clause. It seems quite a bit hypocritical, doesn't it? To say now, well, sure, the vice president's son was making all this money in a country that really needed U.S. aid at the time and assistance. And the guy who is running policy in that country, his son's getting paid all this money. See, this is where we could take a step back and discuss that there is a legalized system of bribery in this country for politicians. It exists. It exists right now. And it's and it's bipartisan. I do not sit here and uh, insult 
the cognitive abilities of, of a single listener to the show by pretending that this is only a a Democrat thing. Now, of course, the Republicans that get in on this, too. Democrats are worse. It's pretty much always true. Uh, but Republicans do this, too. And it's all the different ways that you get paid on the back end of your government service or paid for your contributions to the uh, national discourse via a book or speaking engagements, all these things. Now, how can you really regulate this? The answer is it's very hard to do so. So I'm, I'm not saying that it should necessarily all these things should be criminalized because, by the way, they would weaponize that against re- Republicans. The two tier justice system that we already know we have when it comes to anyone involved in politics in this country, that would be used against Republicans. It wouldn't be used against Democrats. Not the same way. But let's just understand that it's it's gross. You know, for the Democrats complained so much about dark money in politics and the, the influence of money in politics. And then they turn around and want us to believe that Joe Biden making $10 million, I think it is, since he left the presidency giving speeches, that that doesn't influence. And remember, he's not done. And I think that's a very important distinction. If you're a politician or you've run, you've been in office and you're you're out and there's no reasonable expectation that you're going to run or be in political power anytime soon. All right. You know, I mean, it's America. I'm a capitalist free country. People want to pay way too much money for a speech. That's that's up to them. But if you're about to run for president and everybody knows that. This is just legalized bribery. And I would need someone to explain to me how the future Mrs. Sexton, when she you know, my, my future wife, whoever that may be. Uh, When she runs for office and I decide to become a world class finger painter, world class, how it is that people with business in front of my imaginary powerful wife wouldn't be able to say, pay me a million dollars per finger painting on the theory that I'm just really good at that painting. Now, I know this sounds like a silly example, but this is this is what Hillary and and Bill were doing. This is what Joe Biden did. This is what his sons do. It's, yeah, there's no, stay away from the quid pro quo, but there's huge amounts of money involved here from people who think you owe them a favor. And there are plenty of ways to deliver on those favors without anyone having to actually give a a wink, a nod, and write anything down. None of that. So there's a a lot of corruption of the process, uh, corruption of our political process that's right out there in the open. And that's what the Biden thing gets to um i i did i did mention beto i, I want to get to syria i gotta get to tulsi gabbard and we got we got a lot of a lot of stuff to discuss here today my friends uh, and and the entire news media because they're all obsessed with politics they're just going to do the debate all day i mean there's very little breaking news that's going to happen today there's very little knock on wood i shouldn't say that i think i, I knocked on wood once before on the show and somebody's like that's a pagan ritual or something i was like is it really or it's some kind of it's a super pagan superstition. I don't know why one would. I don't know where the knocking on the wood comes from, but uh, ho- hopefully there won't be. By the time you listen to this, there won't be some huge news story that breaks. But but, but back to uh, Beto O'Rourke and guns. So Beto is still running for president, and I'm not even sure Beto knows why he is running for president because like he's not going to win and. His brand, I think, is actually even more damaged, even though he was born, as he said, to do this. This is when, when Beto was asked specifically about his plan for uh, 
confiscation of firearms and, and whether or not he respects the Second Amendment. Here is what Beto says. Here's where he goes. Play seven, please. People who don't uh, give up their weapons. And and follow the law. Just to follow up, your expectations aside, uh, your website says you will find people who don't uh, give up their weapons. That doesn't take those weapons off the street. So to be clear, exactly how are you going to take away weapons from people who do not want to give them up and you don't know where they are? If someone does not turn in an AR-15 or an AK-47, one of these weapons of war, or, or brings it out in public and, and brandishes it in an attempt to intimidate, as we saw when we were at Kent State uh, recently, then that weapon will be taken from them. Uh, if they persist, there will be other consequences from law enforcement. But the expectation is that Americans will follow the law. I believe in this country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I believe that they will do the right Thank thing. Thank you. What Beto is saying here, and I'm not doing the, but in other words, what you're saying, I mean, what, what he is establishing in his own words, but what he's establishing as the future under a Beto O'Rourke presidency, which is like never going to happen, but is if you, uh, if you don't want to give up your Second Amendment rights, and if you don't want to give up lawfully purchased firearms as somebody who has never broken you know, any firearms law and certainly never ever, ever, ever broken any uh, serious laws that would prevent you from having a firearm. If you're a lawful gun owner, Beto O'Rourke is willing to say, comply or we will make a criminal of you. We will send law enforcement after you. We will tell people that they either hand in their weapons or they could go to prison. Now, Democrats have been pretending for as long as I've been an adult that this is not what they want. Now we have a Democrat candidate on the stage very clearly telling us that that is exactly what they want. And the moment that you concede on assault rifles, so-called assault rifles, please, I, I appreciate it. I know there's, there's so many people in this audience that know a tremendous amount about firearms, but I don't know what else. Semi-automatic rifles? Is that what you want me to say? But it's not all semi-automatic rifles. It's just the scary looking ones. I, anyway. So I just I use the term because this is the term. I, if we come up with a better term, that sounds fine for me. But once they take the rifles and that confiscation starts to happen, then people will probably and the Democrats, the left will turn around and say, ah, glad we've established how to do this. But the real gun violence problem is from handguns. And then they're going to come for your handguns, too. They have to because there's there's no rational basis to take semi-automatic rifles away from you and not take handguns away from you when over 95%, 97% of the violence from guns of any kind is handguns. So that, that the, the one-two punch is quite obvious there. First, it can start with the rifles, and then once they've done this mass confiscation, now, I'm sure there's also a sense out there right now, uh, good luck with that. And even Anderson Cooper had a, uh, had a moment of keeping it real there. He's like, you don't even know who has the guns, which is true. Ah, which is also why universal background checks are so important to the left. They are putting in place the pieces for a national gun registry and for the very process of forced confiscation of firearms on penalty of imprisonment. That is what is being discussed in this Democrat debate. It's not an exaggeration. I'm not misconstruing the words. They are talking about taking your guns and sending you to prison if you don't do it. And very few people on that say, I didn't see anybody say, whoa, that's crazy. So even if they don't go along with it, they're not saying they would stop it either. You want to talk about pulling this country apart? Can you imagine what that would be like? What you're going to send federal agents into people's homes who have never committed any crime in their lives 
and who have been, in many cases, lawful, law-abiding gun owners for decades, making themselves and their community safer in the process, and you're going to say, give me your guns or else you're going to prison? How is that going to work out for this country? Well, I also want to talk to you about Tulsi and Syria. The slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand, but so do many of the politicians in our country from both parties who have supported this ongoing regime change war in Syria that started in 2011, along with many in the mainstream media who have been championing and cheerleading this regime change war. Not only that, but uh, New York Times and CNN have also smeared veterans like myself for calling for an end to this regime change war. Uh, just two days ago, the New York Times put out a, an article saying that I'm a, a Russian asset and an Assad apologist and all these different smears. This morning, a CNN commentator said on national television that I'm an asset of Russia completely despicable. As president, I will end these regime change wars by doing two things. Ending the draconian sanctions that are really a modern day siege, the likes of which we are seeing Saudi Arabia wage against Yemen that have caused tens and thousands of Syrian civilians to die and to starve. And I would make sure that we stop supporting terrorists like Al-Qaeda in Syria. Tulsi going after CNN and the New York Times was my favorite part of last night, I have to tell you. And you, you know that she is of the Democrats on the stage. She is my favorite. And it's because of her policies and her service to the country. Thank you very much. Uh, but she's my favorite uh, Democrat on the stage. But there's no, no question. I, I mean, Yang is number two. If you, if you ask me right now, who would I pick for president if i had to don't get mad at me say buck are you a bad thing trump of course not but if i had to pick a president a vice president from that stage it would be president president tulsi and vice president yang that would those would be my picks if we, if you have to have democrats and on the flip side if you're asking me the worst combination on that stage it would be um president beto and vice president Either Bernie or Castro. I'm not sure. I think that those would be, that would be my ranking. So, oh, and who did well last night, by the way? Well, maybe I'll get to that in a few moments because I'm getting away from what Tulsi was saying here. Uh, blaming the Trump administration for what has happened with the Kurds. Look, they made a decision. They pulled out 50 troops. There's still about a thousand or so troops in Syria, but pulling back from an area the Turks have now waged an incursion into. Uh, it's, it's fair to say that this resulted from Trump administration action, but it's also important to understand that half a million people have died in Syria, almost all of it under, under Obama's watch, okay? Half a million people in what is a civil war about control of that territory. ISIS has been defeated. Oh, Trump gets far too little credit for the escalation in the air campaign, working with the Kurds on the ground and the destruction of ISIS that resulted, the liberation of the city of Raqqa. He should get much more credit for that than he does, but he, he does not. But on this point about regime change, and this is where I, I break with a fair amount of Republicans, too. If the purpose of our presence in Syria isn't regime change, then there is no future in which we do not have the Assad regime 
taking control of some areas that right now are at risk of an ISIS resurgence. This is another way of saying, if our plan is not to stay and help someone topple the government in Syria and to do so over the backing of the Iranians and the Russians and the Turks, uh, or, or at least I should say the backing and or opposition of those, those different entities, then what are we doing? We, we're not going to stay in a country in the midst of a civil war with all these factions vying for control in the hopes that we're going to permanently present, uh, prevent a resurgence of a terrorist group there. That's, that's not a feasible plan. So is it regime change that we are hoping for and, and, and trying to engineer in Syria? Because if so, we have fundamentally not learned the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan as a country. And with all the, the casualties, all the killed in action, uh, the seriously wounded, all those you know, that are taken away from their families for months, if not years at a time in order to fight these wars from our military, we have not learned the strategic lesson of this is not something that we should do. And, and, and that's where I think Tulsi Gabbard is correct. And it was fascinating to watch all these Democrats last night say that they want to get out, you know, Pete Buttigieg and others. They want to get out of the Middle East, but they don't want to actually ever give an order to give out of them to get out of the Middle East. They don't ever want to really do it. They just want to talk about it. That's, a, I think, a good short description of Democrat foreign policy. A lot of talk, not a lot of action. Mayor Buttigieg, like many of your fellow candidates on the stage, you've been calling for an end to endless wars. What's your response on Syria? Well, respectfully, Congresswoman, I think that is dead wrong. The slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal by this president of American allies and American values. Look, I didn't think we should have gone to Iraq in the first place. I think we need to get out of Afghanistan. But it's also the case that a small number of specialized special operations forces and intelligence capabilities were the only thing that stood between that part of Syria and what we're seeing now, which is the beginning of a genocide, and the resurgence of ISIS. Meanwhile, soldiers in the field are reporting that for the first time they feel ashamed, ashamed of what their country has done. We saw the spectacle, the horrifying sight of a woman with the lifeless body of her child in her arms asking what the hell happened to American leadership. And when I was deployed, I knew one of the things keeping my, me safe was the fact that the flag on my shoulder represented a country known to keep its word. And our allies knew it and our enemies. Lose Thank that. you, Mayor. You take that away. You are taking away what makes America America. You, it makes our troops and the world a much more dangerous place. Find me a war that America has fought, Mayor Pete, and I will find you people that eventually in that foreign country were left in a very unfavorable position, allies that had to fight it out on their own. Just go down the list. Whole countries, millions of people condemned to fanatical regimes to continue to live under them. Find me a war. I'll, I'll give you the, look what happened in Vietnam. Look what happened in the Korean War. Look what happened in the first Persian Gulf War. Oh, yeah. Didn't work out so well for the Kurds or the Shia Muslims in the South then, did it? Now you could say, Buck, are you justifying all this? I'm not justifying. I'm just saying this is reality. We can't stay forever and say that everything is going to be okay and do all of the 
necessary fighting and dying for other countries. We can't do it. We don't want to do it. It's not our place to do it. And to say that the the slaughter that's going on, I mean, first of all, all, all this, uh, the, the hysteria around what's going on in northern in northern Syria. Is it bad? Yeah, it's bad. I've been into the Syrian refugee camps. I've seen, I've looked in the eyes of people who have lost their whole families, who have watched loved ones gunned down by either jihadists or Assad thugs or, or both. So I'm well aware of the, of the pain and misery. This has been going on for now eight, eight, seven, eight years. You have over half a million people dead. We're, all of a sudden, the, the media acts like a huge war just started and genocide just happened i mean there's been there's been mass atrocities chemical weapons have been used obama didn't do anything about the red line you want to talk about keeping your word what about that the president of the united states said if you cross this line assad if you use chemical weapons we will rain fire and fury down upon you and then assad did and nothing happened what do you think happened after that the Assad regime felt like, okay, well, we don't have to worry about the international community and the United States or anybody else doing anything to really stop us, so we'll do whatever we want now. How many people died as a result of that? How much blood is on Obama's hands because of his unwillingness for political reasons to enforce the red line in Syria? Did you ever hear anybody who took the position that Barack Obama is responsible for dead bodies, specifically personally responsible for dead bodies in Syria. I mean, you might have heard some people say it, but you definitely didn't hear any Democrats. You definitely didn't hear any mainstream media outlets making that claim. And we should ask why. And we should ask why is it that the events of the last few days, which as a percentage of casualties in Syria are a fraction of what has actually happened, a tiny fraction of what has actually happened there, it's getting more outrage from the media and more outrage from a lot of Republicans than anything that happened over the course of a horrific civil war that the Obama administration simply had no idea how to, never mind how to handle it. They just kept making it worse. We were arming jihadist groups in Syria. That happened. Under the Obama administration, that happened. We could sit around and say, oh, but they were trying, oh, was the trying to work with the anti-Assad resistance. And okay, yeah, but we were arming jihadist groups. The Pentagon's program to build a fighting force that we could count on of Sunni Arabs in, in Syria is one of the great debacles you could ever read about. I think they spent $500 million and, and had a total of three fighters who were combat ready by the end of it who didn't defect to Jabhat al-Nusra or uh, the equivalent of what is al-Qaeda in Syria. Who, who didn't join the Islamic State, give all their weapons, and then and or, or just join them and fight with them. It was a handful of guys, uh, based on the reporting back then when it was all going on. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, that, that was the Obama administration. Calling for a, a political solution. I heard more Democrats saying that last night. We need a political solution to Syria. Yeah, what's that going to look like? Assad in charge, or Assad not in charge. There's only, there's only two options here. It's binary. Does anyone really think that there is a, a future in which Assad goes, yeah, you know what? I fought the most vicious and bloody civil war in quite some time, uh, but I, I've decided that, you know, maybe I should allow for democracy now and, and the rights of the people to flourish and all the rest of that. No one thinks that's going to happen. Um, but the way that they're criticizing 
the way that they're criticizing this president on Syria, given what his predecessor handed him and what has really gone on in Syria, just goes to show you there's there's no there's no intellectual integrity, no intellectual honesty when it comes to foreign policy criticism. It's it's all just used now as a uh, a weapon, a a bludgeoning instrument against the Trump administration. That is what they do. And if you wanted to hear from somebody who really has no idea what the heck is going on and just I, I think he has to even wonder why he's on that stage last night. Uh, Julian Castro spoke about Syria and our this was the, there was a mention of the border last night. Here is what uh, Castro had to say. Well, I mean, you asked the question of how are we going to get people to trust us again? The first thing is we got to boot Donald Trump out of the Oval Office so that people will trust us again. Um, you know, I also want people to think the folks this week that saw those images of ISIS prisoners running free, to think about how absurd it is that this president is caging kids on the border and effectively letting ISIS prisoners run free. He has made a tremendous mistake, a total disaster there in Syria. And just to connect the dots for a second, if you're Kim Jong-un, for instance, why in the world would you believe anything that this president says to contain your nuclear weapons program when he tore up an Iran nuclear agreement that we just signed four years ago, which was the strongest agreement to contain Iran's nuclear weapons program, and now he's abandoned the very people that we gave our word to? Thank I would make sure that we, we work with our allies to pressure Thank Syria you. to stop the aggression, uh, and I support efforts at stronger sanctions than this president has announced. How much vapid demagoguery can one man work into one soundbite? That, I, if that was the goal, uh, Castro did an admirable job. He's just, he's all, it's all over the place. And it's, it's all just dishonest, misdirection, pandering nonsense. That, that was what you got from, from Castro. But let's, let's look at some of this piece by piece. First of all, if, Obama wanted an international treaty that would hold beyond his presidency. Maybe he should have gotten a Senate ratified treaty via Congress the way it's supposed to happen and not just said, yeah, I'm going to commit my uh, I'm going to commit future presidents to a crappy deal. Sorry, that's not how it works. Trump didn't sign the Iran nuclear deal. Obama should have known better, but Obama wanted a foreign policy legacy. And for people that really know anything about the Middle East, what they would tell you is that the Obama administration was so desperate for a foreign policy legacy through the Iran nuclear deal that, oh, by the way, they didn't want to do very much in Syria to try to stop the carnage because the Iranians were so invested in backing the Assad regime and the Obama team didn't want to upset the Iranians. Yeah. Doing the mullah's bidding, you could say. So there's that. On this point about kids in cages and the comparison of that to what, what's going on with these ISIS detainee facilities, does anyone really, th- what, what do they think is going to happen to these ISIS detainees? Who, who's going to take them in? Because uh, you're really only going to have two options. I mean, if, if, you, if the Assad regime takes them in, you're probably going to have people being tortured and killed. Uh, or the Assad regime will just decide to let some of them let some of them loose, but for for a whole bunch of different reasons. But guess what? There there was no plan really to deal with all these. No no one knows what's going to happen to all these ISIS detainees, and the Kurds are not are not in a position to hold them in a in a permanent status in these areas because the Kurds don't have a country. They don't have a government in Syria. 
We, we keep coming back to this reality, and we're not about to help them get one. Assad won the Syrian civil war. People don't seem to understand that basic fact. And that means we have to deal with an Assad regime that is going to take back parts of, of the uh, of Syrian territory. And this is what's going to happen. We don't like it the same way that, you know, no one wants to tell you what's going to happen in Afghanistan. I will tell you they're going to take back territory. They already have a lot of territory. The Taliban is going to take back control of whole areas of the country. And eventually they're going to try to make a play for being the national government of Afghanistan. That's what's going to happen. We can pretend that that won't happen, but that is what is going to happen. So we can either deal with the world as it is, or we can deal with the world as we wish it to be and, and throw in a lot of delay and unnecessary expenditure of U.S. military personnel in the process. And if the removal of 50 special forces soldiers from one part of Syria causes a genocide and a mass calamity, we really think that leaving the 50 there for eternity is going to stop all that stuff from happening? I, I don't think so, friends. Uh, people have not thought this thing through very much other than just Trump is awful. They hate Trump. He's so he's the worst. He's so hateful, which we need to just transition into that. This is a part of the Democrat debate that it was overwhelming. It's like they don't live in the United States where we have no major wars currently being fought. Uh, we have a, an economy that is booming at levels um, so th that are so fantastic. The biggest problem we have are, is, is that we have people who believe this can't continue. We must be heading for a recession because this can't continue. And this isn't year one of Trump's presidency. We're going into year four here pretty soon. And that's where we are in the economy. Can it stay this good? Can unemployment stay this low? Those are our fears. And the Democrats make it sound like we're living in some Mad Max dystopia where you know tens of millions of people have no health care, no access to health care. People can't pay their bills and it's all terrible and horrible. And No. No, that's not reality. But if you really think that the single most important factor in life is whether Trump is president or not, because you just hate Trump so much, well, then I guess it is a bad time because not only is Trump president, looks like he may stay the president for quite some time. You had to watch last night's debate and think to yourself, if you, if you watched it, or you can just listen to me talk about it, and you think to yourself, ah, it all makes sense now. They know that they can't rely on the electoral process to defeat Trump, not with this clown car of candidates that they put forward. The reason that they have this in case of emergency, this this backup plan, this plan B of impeachment slash some legalistic offensive via Congress against the president in election year is because they know that the American people have to look at these, you know, the, the ones who are at least open minded about who they're going to vote for. Not the hard left that think the world's going to end in 12 years. You know, Democrats could tell those people anything and they'd believe it and they'd vote for any Democrat. But independents, undecideds, persuadable voters, they have to look at this Democrat field and think these people are just unserious. These people are not worthy of a transfer of power through our election process. I think I'm going to stay with what's working right now. Democrats are terrified about that. And that's also why think about what they think about the repudiation of the political establishment that came from Trump's first election victory. And now how exactly would Democrats describe or how would they feel about things uh, 
if there was a further repudiation of the political establishment, the elites, through a Trump and and really a a ratification of Trump's 2016 election with a re-election, they would melt down. I mean, it would be like the Wicked Witch of the West when when water is thrown on her. I mean, they would just melt. The libs would melt. I talked about it yesterday. Uh, I tweeted out a couple of responses to people not understanding, you know, my knowledge and what it came from from my brain and, and, and for me learning from the situation. I'm talking about it now, and uh, I, I won't talk about it again because I'll be cheating my teammates by continuing to harp on something that won't benefit us, uh, you know, trying to win a championship because that's what we're here for. Um, we're not politicians. Um, I think it's a, it's a huge political thing. Um, but we are we are leaders, and, and we can step up at times. But there's times where I'm not saying in this particular instance, but, you know, if you don't feel like you should speak upon things, you, you shouldn't have to. We don't know the landscape of, uh, of the situation if a week would have went by and then the tweet would have happened. Um, it's easy to say, but we, we have no idea. So, you know, it's just a... It's a it was a challenging, it was a challenging trip for, for all of us that was in China, and and if you were not there, then you just can't relate. It shouldn't be that challenging, Mr. LeBron James. You don't have to weigh in on anything political, but if you're going to weigh in on politics a lot, as LeBron James and other NBA superstars do, if you're going to have very clear political opinions that you use your platform as a professional athlete to share on a whole bunch of issues, and then you choose. To call out somebody else in the NBA who speaks out on an issue that is very politically contentious and and very important, people are going to criticize that or they're going to be able to criticize that if they disagree with you. It's really not that complicated. LeBron seems to think that for the I think for LeBron, really, this is the first time that he's ever experienced speaking out on an issue and having anything happen other than his brand expand and his endorsements become even more lucrative and the people that he views as his main fans and supporters thinking that what LeBron said was fantastic. It was pretty widespread. Oh my gosh. Did he really just throw Maury under the bus for speaking out in favor of the protesters in Hong Kong. How could he do that? And now today, you know, he didn't really apologize. He didn't walk it back. He certainly didn't speak out in favor of the Hong Kongers who want basic human uh, human rights and, and basic uh, human freedom. Instead, he decided to just say, yeah, you know, we're, it's been hard for us. It was a little self-pitying, a little pathetic, actually. But I think we can just leave it there because... The good news is I don't give a a you-know-what about what LeBron James thinks about Hong Kong or anything in politics, to be honest. On the 17th, look, the fact that George Washington worried on the first time he spoke after being elected president, hundreds and thousands of innocent people between there and the the Iraqi border. I'm the only one that got, got... it moved the, uh, to make sure that we could not have a magazine that had more than 10 rounds in it. When you register it, the likelihood of it being used diminishes exponentially. The way to deal with those guns and those AR-15s and assault weapons that are on the street, are not on the street, that people own, <laughs> excuse me, in terms of foreign policy. I've never seen a time 
and I spent thousands of hours in the Situation Room. What is happening in Iraq is going to be, I mean, excuse me, in Afghanistan, took a, almost a $90 billion act that, that kept us from going into a depression. Making us in a put us in a position where I was able to end Rove, excuse me, able to end the issue of gun sales in terms of assault weapons. Well, the senator said she's being vague on the issue of actually both of them being vague on the issue of, uh, of the uh, uh, Medicare for all. Became very close friends with my wife Jill. Visit our home. He's there with his children. So for God's sake, get up, get up, and remember this is the United States of America. There's nothing. Nothing we've been unable to do when we decide we're going to do it. You're Democrat frontrunner, everybody. Joe Biden, he's the answer. Joe Biden. Afghanistan, Iraq. Exponentially. That's that's a fun one. He's he's going to. He's going to exponentially make the country a worse place, is what he's going to do. But uh, Producer Mark pulled that one for me, because uh, at the top of the show, I was thinking about Biden, and he made a little Bidenism. And, and then you have all the gaffes also, which, for normal politicians, a gaffe is a problem. For Biden, it's, oh, it's just Joe being Joe. That's the media protecting him. He was protected for eight years as Obama's vice president. He could do no wrong, really, as long as he was... There for Obama, and as long as he understood that Obama was king and Joe Biden was a was a, not even a distant second, he was in some other some other universe. Uh, then the media just completely had him protected because they were protecting Obama. So was, there was there was no real. That's also why all the stuff about Ukraine and Hunter Biden didn't cause bigger issues at the time. Eh, who cares about that? He's Obama's vice president. Anyway, I know that I wanted to move on past uh, some of, but there there were a couple of of last minute. Uh, kind of grab bag items from the debate that I, I wanted to get to before we talk more specifically about impeachment. And, uh, oh, you know, we we didn't hear from we didn't hear from Yang. And I, I'm a I, I think that Yang is one of the least uh, annoying of the Democrats. Uh, his the, the problem he has with the universal basic income, though, and this is just a little bit of, you know, I read the books about these things. Universal basic income is not supposed to be in addition to a welfare state. It's supposed to be in place of a welfare state. And from what I understand, Yang just wants to give people money and keep all the other social programs in place. No, that's not how this is supposed to work. That's why even some libertarians, for example, say just forget about SNAP, uh, you know, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, food stamps. Uh, forget about Section 8 vouchers, welfare housing. I mean, forget about all these different things and just give people a check. Or give them, yeah, or give them a check every month and let them do what they want with their money, but that's what they're getting every month. That's what universal basic income is supposed to do for people. There's not supposed to be any more safety, at least in, in the original incarnation of universal basic income. That's the way that it was presented. Uh, but you see, the problem with the basic income is that it becomes a less basic thing when people want to add more to it. And then, as I mentioned to you, I think it was yesterday, 51% of the population decides the other 49% has to give them more money, which is not a good thing. And and, and direct payments, not just in a, a welfare program, and, which will have to have a bureaucracy that administers it. But here's what Yang said, because there was, well, first there was a, there was some discussion about the, about the wealth tax. And here is what uh, Amy Klobuchar 
said about this because, you know, you had Tom Steyer, the billionaire there last night. He, he wants to get here's a billionaire who bought his way into politics to tell us all to get money out of politics and be scared of climate change. He wants a wealth tax. Amy Klobuchar had this to say about it. Play 14. I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Uh, We just have different approaches. Your idea is not the only idea. And when I look at this, I think about Donald Trump, the guy that after that uh, tax bill passed, went to Mar-a-Lago, got together with his cronies and said, guess what? You guys all got a lot richer. That was the one time in his presidency he told the truth. So we have different ways. I would repeal significant portions of that tax bill that helped the rich, including what he did with the corporate tax rate, including what he did on international taxation. You add it all up, you got a lot of money that, one, helps pay for that child care, protects that dignity of work, make sure we have decent retirement, and make sure that our kids can go to Thank good schools. Thank you. She had a good night, folks, for a Democrat. I'm just going to say it. And I think that any smart Democrat who wins would think very long and hard about Klobuchar as a VP to help with the Midwest. It depends on who it is, of course. Because Klobuchar started to seem a bit like the... uh, She seems like a more uh, down-to-earth version of Elizabeth Warren without the baggage of uh, decades of racial fraud. So uh, that's pretty pretty good stuff, I think, for, for Klobuchar. Even if she does eat a salad with a comb sometimes. That was what was reported. I'm just telling you what was reported. Andrew Yang, though, speaking about the wealth tax, he understands that this is not going to work out the way that the Democrats on that stage said it would. Play 16, please. Senator Warren is 100% right that we're in the midst of the most extreme winner-take-all economy in history. And a wealth tax makes a lot of sense in principle. The problem is that it's been tried in Germany, France, Denmark, Sweden, and all those countries ended up repealing it because it had massive implementation problems and did not generate the revenue that they projected. If we can't learn from the failed experiences of other countries, what can we learn from? We should not be looking to other countries' uh, mistakes. Instead, we should look at what Germany, France, Denmark, and Sweden still have, which is a value-added tax. If we give the American people a tiny slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every robot truck mile, every Facebook ad, we can generate hundreds of billions of dollars and then put it into our hands because we know best how to use it. Ah, he was on the right track, and then he just took the, took the truck into a tree. <sighs> he's right about the about wealth tax in all these countries. I mentioned it with France at the start of the show. But then he says, oh, but let's just create all these taxes that will create a massive slush fund because we know what to do with the money. No, we don't. You know what to do with your money. Individuals in charge of spending their own dollars, which is really just a representation of their own value and time, the value created and time spent on things. That is what is efficient. That is what builds wealth and not just for an individual, but for an economy overall. The government is not good at spending your money. You would be better at spending your money than the government. This is this is the, the disconnect, the philosophical fundamental disconnect that we have from the other side. And so Yang gets some things right and then takes it he takes the wrong lessons from it and goes very much in the wrong direction. Oh, there's one one other thing I wanted to mention that the uh, uh, Peter Hamby, I don't, I'd never heard of this guy before. He was on Snapchat. He asked Mayor Pete Buttigieg about the Dave Chappelle special, which I have recently been telling you all about. 
And I think the Dave Chappelle special was very funny and it was brave and it was real comedy and it's certainly worth you all watching. And I knew as soon as you watch it, you know exactly what he's getting in trouble for, which is you are not allowed in, in America today unless you are LGBTQ. And even then you're running risks. You are not allowed to make any jokes, no matter how mild or well intended. Not allowed to make jokes about the LGBTQ community. None. Not allowed. Total ban on that based on cancel culture mentality. Uh, well, here is what Mayor Pete, who I have to say, I've never seen him smile or say anything funny or seem like he is a joyless candidate up there on stage as a. Yeah, he's he seems like he's got uh, he's. He speaks well and has a, a good command of subject matter for a Democrat socialist. Uh, but here's what he said when asked about the Dave Chappelle special on this uh, snap during the Snapchat interview. Please play. There's also kind of a subgenre of comedy with like Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr who are deliberately trying to be pr provocative because they're sick of what they think is a culture that's too politically correct. Look, two things are true. One is that part of how comedy works is it challenges our conventions. It challenges our sensitivities. And that's part of what it can contribute. Another thing that's also true is hurtful things and hateful things often come at us in the form of humor. And we just have to learn how to handle both of those things. When a piece of art that uh, is is out there to challenge conventions does something that's really harmful, then I think it's time to turn it off. Uh, but we get to have those debates. Part of Dave Chappelle's shtick in the last couple of comedy specials he did was deliberately making fun of transgender people. I don't want to write these jokes, but I just can't stop. So should that just be turned off? Should he not have a Netflix deal? Like so I, I didn't, uh, I haven't seen the special. Uh, I will say that there comes a point where you're just straight up hurting people. And uh, I, I don't know what goal you're hoping to achieve. Uh, as much as there's uh, been a lot of political correctness, there's also this weird way in which it's become fashionable to attack political correctness that I think has become its own weird correctness out there. No, wrong. The fighting against the bad thing is not the bad thing. Cancel culture and political correctness are a cancer on American society today, period. It is a a psychological restraint as much as anything else. You cannot speak openly. You cannot speak honestly. Nothing can be forgiven. Nothing is that we never give the benefit of the doubt anymore. It's always just racking up more of a professional body count to show people, ah, see, if you transgress, you'll be destroyed. And I'm sorry. Not OK with that. And Pete, Mayor Pete here. Uh, it's just easier to say that instead of his last name, which Buddha judge is how I say it. I think that's pretty close, but I've heard a million different ways to say it. You know, M Mayor Pete wants to be woke. He wants people to think of him as woke. And if you're woke, you know what that also means? You don't have a sense of humor. Woke people aren't funny. They're not funny. They think they're funny. They all make the same jokes about Trump, the same jokes about, you know, Stormy Daniels, the same jokes about Russia. They're not funny. And it's a shame, really, because the power that the left has to control the media is greatly enhanced by this cancel culture nonsense, right? They already are the gatekeepers for what gets made, what shows get made, what movies are, are, uh, are actually put out. They have tremendous influence and all that. But then you add to that. Additionally, you go beyond that with an, oh, by the way, we have this set of ever-changing rules that can end your career if you go so far as to offend our, our sensibilities which shift day to day, depending on 
the winds of how certain, you know, how the winds are blowing about how certain people feel about certain things. That's it. Mayor Pete doesn't even have the intellectual courage to say, maybe we should stop doing, maybe we should cut that crap out. I've never met a person who is interesting and worthwhile, who thinks that cancel culture and the politically correct constraints that we all have to live under are a good thing and will defend. I've never met one. Every person, and I have tons of liberal friends, tons of conservative friends. These days, probably slightly more conservative friends, but nonetheless, I got, I got lib friends, plenty of them. And they all know that this is, they all know that this is bad. Uh, in fact, I think I saw that Twitter is now trying to find a way to deal with the problem. This just broke today. Deal with the problem of journalists whose careers are ruined because of an old tweet. And, and I, I looked at this. I thought, oh, this is astonishing. There are lib journos who live to comb through the tweets of even non-public figures to destroy them and to make an example of them. Doesn't matter if they tweeted something when they're 15 or 16 years old. And it's been 10 or 15 years since then. They, they journalists think that they do a great public service by destroying people based on one tweet from a decade ago, including when somebody was a, a minor. But now we're supposed to think that journalists themselves shouldn't be held to those standards. No, I think the only way out of the hell that is cancel culture and the way to begin to blunt the impulse for virtue signaling that it represents. The only way to get there is to say, all right, if you, you want us to live you want us to live by these rules? Everybody lives by these rules. You know, you want this to be uh, racking up the body count of people getting fired from their jobs and people getting, you know, their careers ruined? You want that to be the example you set? Well, then we're going to have to set it in both directions. I, I don't see an alternative. I don't see it at another way around this. Other than being nice and just getting punched in the face all the time for being nice. Uh, there's no requirement that we have a vote. And so we, at this time, we will not be having a vote. And I'm very pleased with the thoughtfulness of our caucus in terms of being supportive of the path uh, that we are on in terms of fairness, in terms of seeking the truth, in terms of upholding the Constitution of the United States. This is about the most consequential process the House of Representatives could possibly engage in. Overruling American voters and nullifying an election. Surely, any such process must be conducted with the utmost fairness and transparency. It must be held to the most exacting of standards. And yet, House Democrats have wasted no time throwing fairness and precedent to the wind. What do we even call this thing, this impeachment inquiry? Other than a debacle, a partisan, politicized debacle, which is what it is. Does anyone really think that that's not? Oh, Trump is the worst ever. I heard some Democrats last night in the debates talk about the Mueller report. The Mueller report was so bad that they didn't impeach him over that. They had to conjure up something else just in the just in time. Oh, that's right. Right when they wanted something, they managed to find something. Well, as we all know, the whistleblower, there was there was collusion behind the scenes with Adam Schiff. Uh, this was a, a hit. There are people now who are coming forward from within the federal bureaucracy who hate Trump, which is most of the federal bureaucracy, I can tell you. And this, this, whole, this whole thing is just such a sham. It really is such a sham. And yet we're being told that we're supposed to take this as necessary. Not even that this is acceptable, that it's necessary to protect our democracy. So Pelosi says that we will not have 
and in, there, there's no requirement that we have a vote. So this time we will not be having a vote. She's just making this whole thing up as she goes along. They're just trying, trying to do what they can, trying to maneuver, use leaks from closed door testimony, have their allies in the media run with certain stories. But you know what? I totally understand why the Democrat candidates that they're putting forward aren't going to get it done. And their worst fear is that there is a free and fair election without the encumbrances of uh, some impeachment process or whatever, or, or, or without the stain of impeachment on the president. And that Donald Trump will win four more years in office. That, that is their worst fear. I mean, they worry about that more than nuclear war with North Korea. They, they feel like anything that they have to do to stop Donald Trump from being president is acceptable. And when you see those Democrats last night on that stage, there's just objectively speaking, there has to be a moment with these Democrats where all of a sudden it hits them. Oh, my gosh, we might have five more years of Trump in the Oval Office. How how do we and I think they've been worried about this for a while, but I, I believe that it's really now settling in. That's the reality that they're facing. That's why this impeachment nonsense is going on. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is one of the ways that you can get the roll call uh, happening. You can also write to us at uh, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. By the way, as you know, we've got the Pluto show now streaming. Some of you are probably watching me on Pluto as I'm telling you this, so for you it doesn't really matter but those who haven't we have a we have digital tv of the buck sexton show now available on the pluto tv app channel 248 isn't that correct what 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 did i do wrong no you're, you're doing it right i just want to point out to some people who i saw on social media it's not a cable channel pluto isn't yes it's an app on a you know on your phone or on a smart tv because i saw some people saying that their cable provider didn't have that right so i want to clarify for people how to how to get it yeah mark is our unofficial technology correspondent here. i had to explain it to you before the show under the age of 50 so he knows some things um although he's he's curmudgeonly like a 50 year old but that's i have the heart of a 50 year old there we go so uh yeah we channel 248 is how you can watch the show it just brings you here into the hut in new york city you can see how we roll in real time, and uh, that's that's what we do. Channel 248, it's totally free, by the way. Just download it on your smartphone. And not that I want you to watch anything other than the Buck Sexton Show. Well, the Jesse Kelly Show is also on, which is fantastic. Jesse Kelly's the man. He does a great show. He's super funny. He's a fantastic guy. Don't tell him I said any of this, by the way, because, you know, I like to pretend that and I wouldn't say these things, but of course I do. And Je- Jesse's the best, um, all six foot 11 of them. And you, you should definitely watch that show too. So we ha- we'll have more shows that'll be joining the lineup pretty soon, but channel 248 on the Pluto TV app and just turn it on. I mean, we'll be running the shows, those two shows pretty much on a loop, I think. So it's easy for you to catch them and just tune in when you can. Um, and also the podcast numbers, we really appreciate that they are going up because more and more of you are hearing about the show and telling people about the show and it is early enough that you can listen to it now at a minimum in drive time, if not if not before then. So now I'm hoping that you make this uh, and you tell other people that really spreading the word is the most important thing. Because if you're listening, you already know about the show. But I'm hoping you will tell others that the Buck Sexton show is what they should be listening to for their da- their daily download about all all of the things that are going on. All right. Let us get to it. Um, hold on one second here. 
Uh, Adam writes, Buck, if you decide uh, Ben Ben Weingarten uses a particular filler phrase when he's talking, which I understand is to let his brain catch up to his mouth. Shields high. Uh, well, I don't know what that filler phrase is, Adam, but uh, I heard that Ben did an excellent job. So, yeah, I guess we'll just kind of leave it there for now. It's good to have good to have Ben filling on the show. Nicholas writes, I love the accents and the singing. Keep it up. Crap me, crack me up uh, singing with the Trudeau accent the other day. Oh, I, I, I appreciate that. Here I go. Here I go. Here I go again. Girls, what is my weakness? I just want to shoot. Wait, may we be in sir? I just want to shoot, no? I don't even know what to shoot means. Um, but I think I know what song you were trying to sing, but I, I don't know where you're going with it, though. I'm just trying to think of random songs. There was no rhythm of. there. All right, whatever. You were just saying words Trudeau to a song. Trudeau doesn't have any rhythm. You think that guy could dance? Actually, he, maybe he can. Maybe. Yeah, he's he yeah. probably took like ballroom dancing growing up. I hey, I took a little ballroom dancing growing up. True story. Got to got to know how to dance at those debutante balls, my man. I, I'm gonna have to take a dancing lesson soon. I'm being forced. That's right for, for the, the wedding. wedding right? Yeah. Ah. Well, how's it coming along? The the wedding planning. Yeah. Expensive. Weddings are expensive. Yeah. Too expensive. You know what else is expensive? I'm told. Kids. Mm-hmm. Get That's ready. why we're waiting as long as possible. Get ready. Get ready for that one. Yep. <sighs> Weddings. It reminds me of also wedding crashes. Remember when? Uh, remember when he says to the guy, I "Saw you on the dance floor. You move pretty good. It's like me, man. Surpri- surprisingly nimble on these feet. I will have you know. Thanks to the uh, good to know. Yeah. That well, now that case. we have a camera in here, you can dance also. So people. I mean, uh, don't give me any ideas. That could definitely happen. But uh, the Trudeau accent will be coming back, even though it's ridiculous. It doesn't even sound like Trudeau. But my Elizabeth Warren, that's the one I really want to, I really want to nail that accent. Because, wow, could you imagine four years, maybe eight years of Elizabeth Warren talking about how my daddy told me Wall Street bankers are crooks. (laughs) It's like, did your dad really tell you that? Oh, man. Uh, She's... She's such a phony, I almost respect it. You know, she's kind of in that category of uh, Frank, I think his name is Frank Abagnale, right? The guy from Catch Me If You Can, where he's such a such a talented fraud that you go, wow, that guy's really good at fraud. Uh, let's see. Kristen writes, yes, please sing the holiday songs with your voices. That was hilarious. Well, Kristen, I think, I think we know what we may have to do as part of a, a special, maybe a special segment as we get closer into the holidays. Chestnuts roasting over an open fire. Sleigh bells ringing in the snow. Do I get any say here? Is the one who None. invented all of this? The people have uh. sp- the people have spoken, sir. Lovely. Yeah, that's right. Here we go. Frank writes: How does one quit the CIA? Isn't it like trying to quit the mob? Um. No, nah, Frank, you can quit. I, I, I left. Um, I left on very good terms with uh, the folks at Langley, but I left. Uh, you have a lifetime secrecy agreement, so that's a real thing. You have to respect that. But no, other than that, you know, you, you can leave the CIA. Uh, I wish it was, I wish I had a cooler answer for you, but yep. Jeremy writes Buckman, which is technically my name. So nice to hear Tulsi Gabbard at the debate 
lay the smack down on CNN and the New York Times for calling her a Russian stooge. Nobody should mess with the spirit of aloha. Shields high, Jeremy. Dude, I'm, I'm telling you, man, I'm, I, I, I like Tulsi. I don't know what to say. Some Republicans just want to hate all Democrats. I, I, I do not find her hateful at all. I think that she, I think she's, I think she's wrong on some policy, but I think she's pretty cool. And this reminds me of a lot of people I'm friends with. They're wrong on policy, but they're still cool. They're smart. They're good people. So, uh, you know, I think it has not, and has nothing to do with, you know, the whole surfer. She's a 37 year old unmarried female thing. By the way, some of you, I, I, whenever I get called out on this, I'm like, come on, come on. The Buckster, these, these considerations don't even factor into my thinking. I mean, it's kind of cool that she serves, but whatever, whatever. We don't have to get into that. Uh Uh-oh. Every time Mark swivels over the chair, I know there's something coming my way. It was work this time, but I mean. Oh, okay. You actually were doing work. Maybe you just wanted to miss a Sexton. There we go. Would would Buck Sexton marry a Democrat? Wow, that's a question for me. I know. That's a thinker. Mm-hmm. That's a, we'll get a little, back to that one. A little stumped on that one, folks. Don't not sure that I have an answer. Sean, Freedom Hut board member, self-described. I appreciate that, man. Also known as Original Saturday Squad. Hello, Buck. Speaking of Hunter Biden and how much he was getting paid for being on that board, what was the average pay of the other members of the board? Curious, Sean. You raise an interesting question, my friend. I I don't know what the answer is to that. And I would, and I would be, I would be a bit curious myself. I'd, I'd want to know uh, what the other board, because if, if Hunter Biden was making fifty k and they were all making five, wouldn't that also just further solidify the basic concept here, which is that Hunter Biden was a non quid pro quo bribe to influence the thinking of people in the government, not just Biden, about how they would deal with Burisma. Wouldn't that wouldn't that help? You could call it circumstantial evidence, I think. You could call it circumstantial to be sure. But I don't know the answer, Sean. So we should find out. If we had an honest press, they would already know. Emily writes, Hey Buck, first let me say your Elizabeth Warren impression had me laughing out loud tonight. Great job. Thank you, Emily. Also, I heard you mention the other day that you may start calling CNN Cuomo Brother Fredo instead of Bro Cuomo. But I love Bro Cuomo and the impression. Please don't give that nickname up. Yo, do you even lift, bro? Bro Cuomo, it's like, yeah. You know, I take a little creatine, lift all day, go on CNN, lie in order to propagate liberal ideology, and then threaten to throw strangers downstairs if they say something I don't like in reference to a movie from The Godfather from back in the day. Do you even lift, bro? I do. Does creatine help? I don't know. I've always thought yeah. they put it in like iced tea drinks. So how, how much can it really help? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I eat a lot of protein, but it's fun though. Whenever we have any kind of a fitness discussion on, on air here, there's always there's always a few wise guys in the audience who are like, I'm just training for my natural bodybuilding championship. Thought I'd show you this picture of how to get it done at the gym. And I'm just like, that, I did not ask for this. No. This was not requested. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, Excuse me, sir. The shirtless selfie was never requested. I lift to stay healthy. I don't lift to yeah. uh, show off. Yeah, it's mm. good for the heart. Exactly. Yeah, it's good for the heart. Good for the good for the mind too. By the way. Uh, oh, but Emily continues on. Uh, my six-year-old listens to the car sometimes and knows how much I like your show. 
The other day while we were watching football, he randomly asked, which team does Buck like? I couldn't give him an answer. So although you are not a huge sports fan, do you have a favorite NFL team? Absolutely love your show and amazing insight. Shields high. Emily, thank you for the very, very kind uh, message today. Uh, yeah, I mean, by family obligation, I'm a Giants fan. And I also am not enough of a masochist to be a Jets fan. You're probably a, you're, are you a Jets? No, Nets I'm a Giants fan. fan. Are you a Giants fan? Yeah. All right. We can still be friends. I'm curious if you could even name one player on the Giants right now. Nah. Really? Eli Manning. I mean, he's not the starting quarterback anymore. I don't know if you're aware. Did not know that. Wow. Yeah. He is on the team, though. Got benched. So, there we go. How's the other guy doing, then? I mean, he's a rookie. He's doing all right. The Giants aren't very good this year. What is, what's the record? Uh, two and four. Oh, that's not. Yeah, no. Where are the Jets? Uh, the Jets are one and four, but their quarterback was out for most of the season. Ah. Uh. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't know anything. This is this is like a long time ago. Someone asked me. No, it wasn't that long ago. Maybe 10 years ago. I, I tried to play it cool. Like, yeah, I like the Yankees. And they're like, who's your favorite player? I was like, Don Mattingly. And the guy was like, he retired 15 years ago. Yeah, maybe was, more. Yeah. And I was so, yeah. You know, they're they're in the American League Championship Series right now, right? No idea. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't. I have to devote all, all this, you know, this massive cranium. Sure. I have to devote it to making sure that I tell the folks what's going on. All right, that's fair. You know? yeah, I'll exactly. give you that. Yeah. That plus, you know, got to drink a little mezcal sometimes and let it rip. Uh, let's see. Craig. Buck, I appreciate your comments on the Syrian situation to be refreshing. Uh, 99% of Americans have never served in the U.S. military. 71% of young people today are not even qualified to serve. I have no concept of what it is like to be in a situation where you can be ordered to stand on the wrong end of a rifle. Thank you for your service and having such an honest assessment of the Kurdish-Syrian-Turkish situation. Testudo! Buck. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to give you guys the best assessment I can of what I think is happening in Syria. It is, it is very complicated. I mean, I, I don't pretend that this is not a difficult issue. And, and anyone who tells you that it is not complicated does not know what the heck they are talking about. So you can always remember, you can always keep that in mind. That is absolutely the case. Um, but we'll see. I, I think that Trump in time will be viewed remember de decision making is often just about you know go or no go the implementation of it is always going to be imperfect when you're talking about a conflict on the ground in a place like syria but the basic idea that trump has here of we are not going to continue this war i think it's the right one and people who say it's not a war it's a training mission and it's a so such a small footprint and everything else okay well if it's such a small footprint it's a such a small training mission how could it matter that much why is it so necessary? Uh, so I, I think that people are, look, the, the national security establishment in this country still very much believes that the U.S. military is the instrument to fix all problems all over the world. It's just a question of, you know, how much they can convince us to do that at any given time. I, I feel differently about it. Ralph, meaning that I think our military should fight when there's a threat for them to fight that affects us. That's a problem. That's our problem. My man Ralph writes in, the Pluto TV rocks. Well, Ralph, thank you so much, man. We love the Pluto TV. We hope that all of you people listening will download it. We'll check it out because it is fantastic. Pluto TV app. It's not hard to get. Just go on your smartphone, whatever your smartphone is, type in Pluto TV, download it. Then just look. You'll see it looks like a, it looks a bit like a cable guide uh, from, your, from your TV, but you just scroll on your phone, go to channel 248. Boom. Watching the Buck Sexton show, uh, Buck Sexton show. So, 
And now the problem is you guys can see me, so I can't just like shave the beard and nobody would notice. Because I've been thinking about it. Or show up in sweatpants like most radio people do. Yeah, I know. Well, hopefully I even they... have to dress a little nicer. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes mm-hmm. we might we gotta throw you on camera sometimes. Well, that's okay. Get ready for it. Will right. Uh Thanks for doing that speaking engagement at the New York Young Republicans Club. It's good seeing you. Need to do more of those in NYC in the Underground Freedom Hut. Yeah, well, well, look, I love doing live speeches. It's fun. Hoping to do more. So uh, that was fun with the New York Young Republican Club. And uh, yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks for showing up. I appreciate it. We had some team buck in attendance in New York City a few weeks back. And it was great. And it makes it more fun for me. And uh, thank you so much for showing up. And hopefully we'll do another one pretty soon. All right, we're back in roll call here. We have our friend uh, Michael writing in. He says, remember, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be a part of our roll call shoutouts. Uh, he writes, Buck, uh, great to see you on your new Pluto show. Cool platform. Look forward to listening and watching you moving forward. Shields high. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate that. Very, very kind of you to say. Um, let's see what we have here. John, Shields High, real news fan. You have at least two Ramirez. Wait, what? You have at least two Ramirez slipped through without saying it in the in the voice. It's becoming unacceptable. I don't know what that is, my friend. Two Ramirez slipped through? What is that? Is this no some, clue. Is this some kind of Illum- Illuminati, the Bilderbergs? Maybe is that, is that what I slipped? Did I tell you about the Illuminati? Did they finally find out about this? Maybe some hip new slang word. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, Buck Six. I, I know this guy. I know this guy. I can't trust. Him. He's got secret words he uses on the radio show. Can't do it. Bilderberg's Queen of England, the Illuminati. You could work on that radio show, by the way. That would really be a trip. This one's this one's a little more sane. You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? No clue. Well, we just blew his mind. You guys all know. That's going to be it for the show today. Thank you so much for hanging out. Definitely download the Pluto TV app. Definitely share this podcast. Available on iTunes, the iHeart app, up at 3 Eastern every day. On Pluto TV at 5 Eastern. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.